Welcome to the Christie's Education Podcast, Jet's Dreams, hosted by Michael Plummer. We will be presenting a series of conversations with thought leaders that provides a 40,000-foot view of the art world as it continues to reconfigure after the pandemic. At a time when new trends are converging and economic forces are changing, many art market participants are asking, what's next? We will be speaking to leading thinkers who are drawn from a cross-section of the global art world, from collectors to journalists, from museum directors and curators to artists, from dealers to auction house executives, from writers to art financiers and advisors. We will get their views, right here. I'm Michael Plummer here at Newsstand Studios at One Rockefeller Plaza with my guest today, Suzanne Georgie. Suzanne is a partner at Emigrant Bank Fine Art Finance. Prior to joining Emigrant in 2023, Suzanne was a managing director and global head of City Private Bank Art Advisory and Finance for more than two decades, where she had a bird's eye view on the collecting patterns of some of America's most active and passionate art collectors. Earlier in her career, Suzanne served as the director of Payne Weber UBS Art Gallery in New York. Here, she worked closely with Don Marin, one of the most dedicated and admired art collectors of his era. As you might detect here, there is a theme on collecting emerging, on which Suzanne has a particularly unique insight. In our second episode, we had Magnus Resch provide us with important advice on how to collect art from his new book of the same name. On this podcast, I intend to get Suzanne's perspective on the point of view of seasoned collectors and perhaps tease out some of the issues that are much talked about on the role of financialization and borrowing in the art market, as well as the impact of high interest rates on recent collector behavior. First of all, what was your first take on the auctions? You know, I think leading up to the auctions, there was a lot of press a bit predicting gloom and doom, a little bit of chicken little, the sky is going to be falling which I find frustration with because with the financialization of the art market, people are following the numbers and not the art. And if you don't have the Paul Allen sale, you don't have the Macalow sale, you don't have the Ambass sale, but you're fortunate enough to have the Emily Fisher Landau sale, you've got great things, but it's not as big. You know, going into the season, people were predicting the numbers would be lower, but of course they would be because there were fewer, you know, masterworks in these sales. But what struck me is, and I was honestly surprised by it, is that I saw collectors from all around the world and serious collectors that had flown in from Europe, flown in from Asia, were walking the the auction floors with their art advisors and really, really looking and really assessing the art that was on view. And I think that the good things sold well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, honestly, when you take all the kind of noise away from the auction seasons and the art fairs, for generations, good things sell well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I am an optimist, but I felt very good about the sales. Mm-hmm. A good friend who's a senior person at one of the auction houses was saying that they were pleased with how the season did, but going into it at the end of the summer, it was the scale of property or the amount of property they, they had for the various owner sales was extremely limited, almost scarily limited. And so suddenly it all came together in a very short period of time. And I think what you're saying is that many people were surprised that the various owner sections of the sales were better than the press or that leading into it 
made you expect them to be. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, coming from, to touch into art lending a little bit, coming from a major bank and now in a more boutique private bank, when all that negative press about, you know, the sky's falling, we're not going to have the records comes out, all the risk managers are suddenly reading every art article out there, and then they get spooked. So it's not doing a service, really. I think it would be so much better to wait and report what happened, you know, and re- actually report the numbers. I do understand that people need to go in fully aware of what's going on. And certainly, if you looked at the sales, there were a lot of guarantees. Yeah. Yes. So, which is a sign that people wanted safety. Yes. And prices were set at lower benchmarks going into the sales. And, went, mean, and went lower as we were sitting in, in the room, right? <laughs> yeah, those last minute scrambles yeah. based on interest at the exhibitions and bids in the book. So that does get the auctioneers scrambling to make sure things get sold. And it's from my experience inside an auction house, It's I've always found it fascinating how quickly they can react to a market and adapt the pricing in the room or in the day before the sale. So the good side is that that keeps the property selling and moving through and the BI rate low. The side that sometimes gets interpreted as the downside, which I don't think it is, except for the consigner, is that it means that prices are perhaps at a lower rate for a period of time, but they can quickly readjust in the next season's sales. When Kelly was here the last time, she said that she thought her gut feeling was that prices were maybe 30% lower in general, vary from artist to artist. Now, going back to those loan managers, those portfolio managers at the banks, when they read something like that, the prices may be 30% lower, does that cause them to then have the collection reevaluated and deal with margin calls and things? Or how how much wisdom do they have in times like this to stay calm and not do something too quickly? I would say when banks read those things, it starts a conversation within the bank. Right. For banks like City that have an in-house team or an immigrant that has an in-house team of art specialists, it's a different conversation because if you're an art specialist, you know the market and you've been in the market for a long time. You know when sale does not a market make. And you also know that in the history of time, certain artists go up and certain artists go down. And, you know, that's sort of how life is. In some sectors of the market, there's a fashion component. If you're in that area, you can have more volatility. Mm-hmm. But people going in there into that sector know that or should know that. Right. So it's kind of eyes wide open. What really struck me was the Agnes Martin from the Emily Fisher Landau sale, where if you looked at it on, online, you couldn't see it. Right. I mean, it was there, but you could the, not read it. The lines were too faded, right? Yeah, and, it just looked like, you know, masking tape. Right. If you, you know, you blew it up, you, you couldn't, you just couldn't see it. But getting, going to Sotheby's when it was on view, there's this magnificent, subtle, beautiful painting that is like luscious in its simplicity and how she'd created it. And people were all around it. Mm-hmm. I think it had an estimate of like six to eight and ended up selling for 16. Right. And there were five bidders on it, real that's bidders amazing. in the room. That's amazing. And that's a sign of a passionate collector wanting something that had that wall power. Yeah. And I noticed that also about the Picasso and the Emily Fisher Landau Picasso that 
seeing it in person was an entirely different experience of seeing it online. That it, um, I mean, it had the, the great provenance, fantastic, one of the best provenances you could have. And of course, it was from one of Picasso's best periods and all of that. Aside from that, its wall power, when you stood in front of it, was off the charts. I mean, it just, it, you can't convey that in a printed catalog. Right, or, and the beauty of that blue yeah, was so beautiful. Exquisite. And that the face was this combination of the sun and the moon. Yeah. It was an incredible painting. Yeah, which is as popular as online auction viewing has become. It does make an argument for being in person and, and seeing the works of art and making your decision based on that in-person tangibility of, of the real thing. And the best collections are always built by collectors that are passionate. Yeah. That they're number one passionate and they educate themselves, but they're driven by by the passion of walking into a museum and seeing a painting and being physically moved by it. Right. You know, you brought up Don Marin earlier, yeah. you know, wonderful experience in my life to be able to work with him. He was passionate about art and he dug deep and he explored, but it was a drive of passion. Yeah. Those sorts of collectors, which I've had my own experiences with in the past, their passion is so inspiring and compelling that they can wake up in the middle of the night or in the early morning thinking they, they have to have something or they saw something or they're thinking of some hole in their collection. And when we've spoken on this subject in the past, you've mentioned very much the long-term perspective that comes with it, that they're not sitting at home reading newspaper reports about the market being up or the market no. being down. They're looking at what's on the market that fits into their collection. Mm -hmm. And they're patient. And they're, they're looking and looking and looking. They're looking for quality and they're very, very patient to get the right thing. And I think that's why at auction right now, the very special best of the best is selling. I think another example in the Landau sale was that Mark Tansy, yeah. which was incredible. And I'm sure now a record for Tansy at auction. Yeah. But an ama amazing painting. Yeah, it was. It was. So... Let's go back to the point you made earlier about some of the bad press. And I don't want to say that it, in any way that it was bad press or make that sort of connection here because it was, Claire's reports on the art market are always very, or they're excellent. They're, they're I, yeah. in, integral to our understanding of the art market and the size and activity in the art market. But that report, which was based on interviews and questionnaires with collectors, understandably painted a more mixed view of the art market, of collectors' perspectives and sentiment, sort of like a consumer index sentiment coming out in November, which had been pre-scheduled. She, she didn't schedule that based on how what was happening over the summer. It was an accident of timing. But her review was mixed, as I said, in the best and maybe a little bit negative in, in some ways. And the summer was a difficult summer because the May sales did badly or they didn't do well. So there was this uncertainty. And then I think activity over the summer was incredibly slow. So people were anxious and whatnot. So that's an example of reporting on the press that actually from the press or from observers on the press that was maybe in the sense that you were referring to not helpful, but it is something we're dependent on in keeping tabs of the art market. And I just wanted your view on that sort of activity. So I want to be clear that I think that the reporting that Claire McAndrews does for Art Economics and also what Kelly Crow and all the other reporters are reporting is incredibly valuable. And that they're collecting all that data and sharing it with us. You know, we need it. We need data in the art market. So I'm grateful for it and, you know, applaud the work that they do. 
Yeah, I was talking to Michael Moses recently, back in the day, had his index and still does. That index showing the art market against the S&P made bankers and banks so much more comfortable with the art market because they saw the S&P, they saw the different sectors of the art market resonated. So it's valuable, having been in a bank setting, to talk about art without data is very difficult. So what they're doing is incredibly valuable for the market. I would say that I think sometimes we go over our skis on the financialization of the art market and forget that what we were talking about before, that collectors love to collect. You look at the numbers for Sotheby's and Christie's and Phillips of how many people are viewing auctions virtually now. Right. Thousands and thousands of people. So it's the art market and art is resonating with people. And what gives me so much hope, uh, you know, I've done a lot of work in Asia and, you know, around the world is this younger generation of collectors that's coming up, getting educated extremely quickly on the market, on the artists, meeting all the, you know, the important galleries and the smaller galleries, going to the auctions, going to the art fairs and really looking and starting to build really important collections for the next generation. Right. There's a lot of hope out there. Actually, after our summer where people were apprehensive, even after the fall sales and maybe going into Art Basel, it was a more hopeful experience than people were anticipating. Mm -hmm. um, you were down there. And what was your take, your reaction? You remember the years when Art Basel would open and people would dress up like they were art handlers to run in and try and get in there first. I think they're handling the VIP situation very well. So in the beginning of the fair... You could really walk around and look at the art. And we had a client who was very interested in painting, you know, in the million-dollar range. You know, I heard other things sold. You know, we worked with a number of other people that were buying, you know, under $100,000, but buying very, very serious works of art that are, you know, going to be the bit, their new, newer collectors, going to be the basis of a really important collection. And, you know, you can see people getting the bug and really studying and developing their eye. and you know, and have this desire to have, you know, beautiful, important works of art in their homes. You know, when I went to the first Art Basel in 2002, having struggled in the 90s while at Sotheby's, when I was running marketing there to get new collectors in, which was difficult in the 90s because the market yeah. was very stagnant. And there wasn't the data. And there wasn't data. <laughs> there wasn't data. And then that first Art Basel Miami Beach in 2002, for me, and I think almost everybody else, it was an astonishing experience, not just the experience itself, but for me, the potential for bringing new collectors into the art market. And it has done a phenomenal job. And in fact, I would say it's the single biggest tool for educating a new generation of collectors in the United States. Globally. Globally, Globally. yes. Did you feel that that kind of energy still was there this year, that it still it still had the buzz and the energy and the optimism, as you use the word, in the younger generation coming in? Yeah, no, it definitely did. And it wasn't frenetic. So yeah. it, it functioned the way you would want an art fair to function. As it originally did, and actually. It, yeah, where the dealers had time to talk to the collectors and would take them into their little back little closet rooms and show them special things. You had time to bring out books on the artist. And we were bringing collectors that so they probably went three times to a given right. gallery. Right. But they were willing to do that. They were like the dealers were functioning like real dealers, right. educating and brought great things. 
And that's a really important thing. When we created TAFAF New York here in New York and we were running it and the complaint that we were getting from a lot of dealers then was that the iPhone and technology was interrupting and breaking up and interfering with that traditional dealer role of being the educators. You know, the auction houses are the people that sell things in quantity and quickly and are a major lubricant in the market and are great marketers. But the dealers are the storytellers. They're the, the educators. They're the teachers. They're the, the people who do the long-term grooming of the clients and educating in the, in that positive sense of educating. And, the, and taking care of the artists along the way. And taking care of the artists. Exactly. So you felt that this fair just hit the sweet spot in returning that to some sense of normal for the time being. Yeah, no, definitely. And you know, it's funny that you bring up iPhones now that I think about it. There were fewer people walking around taking selfies, Mm. like reduced by 75%, I would say. That's huge. People were really looking. That's huge. Yeah. 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 I mean, Art Basel um, Hong Kong is not like that. but, But now that you think about Miami was definitely people had their phones in their bags. That's almost old school. Yeah, people were looking. Yeah. And how did you find that the ancillary fair environment, the other fairs surrounding Basel? I mean, they're all great. There's so many. I didn't have time, but apparently the line to get an art Miami was so long that people were bagging, you know, going into the line. Untitled was, looked like they doubled the size. I don't know if it's actually doubled, Mm -hmm. but was I love that fair. So that that was great. What about Nada at the Ice Palace? Did you get over? Didn't get to Nada. I was very busy in the main fair. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you were. I mean, uh, that fair has, what, 240 or 50 yeah, dealers. Yeah. So, yeah. So when you mentioned the financialization and data, and I talk about this in my course at Christie's Education, is that that really wasn't possible until having data and showing the performance of art against other asset classes until really the early 2000s because Artnet really only started collecting and and others only started collecting data in the early 90s so that you really needed a decade of data. So it was a relatively new thing. And myself and others have done analysis on the art market and to to do those comparisons like May Moses did and others. And for financial people, as you mentioned, it was groundbreaking in the sense that they could now look and see that the art market wasn't this crazy place where there was no financial logic applied. There was a financial logic to it, even if it did behave differently than other aspects of other asset classes, especially asset classes where the assets are traded on a daily basis. So in some ways, we're relegated to these big events in particularly in November and May that things sort of swing around. That is the planet everything revolves around. What I also talk about in my class is that for that reason and others, one can't get too hung up on that data, that there is unevenness of the art market, the value of the objects, that these big items can distort numbers, can distort artists' returns and other things. The lumpiness of the art market can, even the index you use, whether you use May Moses or some of the other indexes can give you very different results. So there is an argument to be made that while the financialization of data and and the collection of data and the comparison of data can be very useful, it always needs to be applied with some sort of footnote. Or two. Or two. Or three. (laughs) Yes. And at the end of the day, 
And this goes back to your discussion about Don Marin, who was a financial person through and through. But at the end of the day, it is connoisseurship, the connoisseurship of the collector that derives the value. So even if you're collecting with a financial perspective, you need to be collecting with a connoisseur's eye. Exactly. Because two works by the same artist, one can be inferior and one can be superior, and you must have your own experiences of that. <laughs> well, you see collections where they, you know, I mean, what is it, collecting with your eyes, not your ears? Right. And you see those collections where they bought all the hot names, right. but their eyes weren't skilled enough to get the best ones. So right. they had all the hot names, and they were all B plus, B minus works. And when you put that together, it just sinks down. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right. People need to really spend a lot of time looking and looking and looking and developing their eye that way. To follow that on to the Emily Fisher Landau collection, which sold at Sotheby's in the fall, what makes those collections have great value as investments is not that Emily Fisher Landau was looking at this as an investment, but was actually using the eye of a great collector and the instincts of a great collector to make those decisions. And that's what made it desirable. It's not that she was comparing these to returns on exactly historic returns right. on various artists or following the latest fad, which goes from season to season and changes. Quickly. Quickly. And so usually when markets are slow, people with more of a speculative bent, and there are a number of those in the market, there's sort of the last in and the first out in some cases, not always. But how active were they this fall? Did they abandon the market? I think when you saw how well emerging some of the emerging artists did, they're definitely in the market looking at the newer artists and collecting vigorously. I think there's a whole new generation of collectors that are, you know, building private museums, putting together amazing collections, and will be the future of collecting. Yeah. Now let me put your predictive hat on, <laughs> which is a, a dangerous thing always for all of us, but I'm going to put you to it anyway. <laughs> having been in the market as long as you have and having worked with several generations of collectors, what do you think this new generation that are taking? I mean, the boomers are leaving the market. They started leaving, according to Claire's wonderful reports, in during the during COVID, it sort of exacerbated their sort of pulling back from buying. So they're now more sellers, the boomers, rather than buyers. Or do you not agree with I that? I don't agree with that. I think they're still collecting. Mm -hmm. I mean, the major collectors. And I think they're going in different areas and maybe going more contemporary, hmm. maybe you know, looking at other areas of the art market to collect in. No, I, mm -hmm. think th I think they're there in that some of the artists that they were collecting are not being collected as much any anymore, but it doesn't mean that they've stopped collecting. I got it. And again, to this generational shift, I mean, we've seen how the areas that were hot in, say, the 90s and the aughts, early aughts, are now, people have moved away from. I mean, old master paintings, 19th century paintings, uh, early American paintings before 1950, before the contemporary <laughs> abstract movement, abstract expressionism, and furniture, great furniture, even Chinese works of art, right. historic Chinese works of art. Do you see anything with younger collectors of a resurgence in interest in those areas, or do you think it's going to be a while? Until... I think it's going to be a while. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely to be a while, especially my, my experience working with families in Asia, the younger generation is going out and doing their own thing with their parents' blessing. 
And doing their own thing, what are they looking at? What is they're looking? They're looking at contemporary. They're looking at and emerging or classic, you know. You know, kind of a combination. Like Keith Haring is very, very attractive. Kenny Sharp, and then emerging. And then emerging. Kusama is always part of the mix. uh, Yeah, Kusama is always part of the mix. And coming out of COVID, there was, it seems like in the dealer sector, the greater interest was in new art in primary market more so than in secondary market art. And do you see that trend continuing or adapting? I think probably adapting. COVID was interesting because we were, what we were looking at was on our iPads, right? right? So we were looking at our iPads, we were blowing it up and it became, people were, the auction houses were strategically as much as they could selling work that would look good on a screen, mm-hmm. which it harkens back to the Agnes Martin, which wouldn't have sold so well during COVID because it didn't look good on the screen. It looked amazing in person. Yeah. So I think we are coming back to people looking at things in person. Yeah, which then argues for New York continuing to be kind of a center for the art market because it argues for having locations like New York and Paris and London where people really feel the need to gather to actually see things. So we, we, we may be seeing a return to the way the world was previously. Or people are just going to start flying around again. You know, our carbon yeah. footprint will be shot again. But <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because Hong Kong certainly has a lot of people coming. And Art SG in Singapore in January 2024 has a lot of people going. So I just, I think it's a global phenomena and that the interest is really unbelievable and really heartening. And so you're seeing, despite pressures in mainland China on the economy there and changes in it that have been rather drastic, negative news coming out of there, you see that market of collectors, generally not just the mainland Chinese, but the Asian market, which is not the same as the Chinese market of collectors. You see that as still being vibrant and healthy, and they were present for this last fall? I think so. You know, the best, best collectors, you would never know that it's them buying. I definitely think so. Yeah. You know, mainland China is another kettle of fish, but but yeah, no, I I feel it continues to be a global market, where if one area falls out a, a bit, there's another area that comes in. Yeah. That's what has been keeping it really vital and vibrant and growing since the early 2000s when all those different countries started collecting in the same way that the Western right, markets right, did. Yeah. Right. Back to data, when you think about when the market fell apart in the 90s, there was no data to look at, right? Yeah. Like things dropped in value by 50% overnight. That's right. That's right. That, that was, in fact, when Claire did her very first report on the art market and created a starting point, a benchmark yeah. for comparison was like in 1991. We had nothing really before then. Because we had libraries full of auction catalogs where right. we would pull them out and have to remember what auction, write the notes down. So it's like we have so much at our fingertips now. But to your point earlier, it needs to be looked at with the eye and the mind of someone that understands art and the art market. Yeah. And not just the data. Where do you think the art market might be heading over the next several years, three to five years? I know it's a hard question to answer. Do you think it'll stay more the same? Do you think there might be some surprises because of global conflicts? Do you have any concerns that keep you up at night about the state of things? Well, I think with the art market, certainly the auction market, it's, you know, whether there's a big estate or not, or a big divorce. Right. Right. And if there's not, then it's more... 
not as buoyant just by because they're not the big mega things that are fresh to the market coming up at auction. Yeah. And you had told me previously that you felt that the increase in interest rates was not having as big effect on the market as some people in the press have been saying. And you, would you like to elaborate a little on that? Sure. I think for people that are getting art loans to do an arbitrage, certainly it matters. So, if, you know, back in the days when you could borrow very, very low, take that money, reinvest it, and make 8%, it was very attractive. But I've been, you know, in the art lending business, you know, in addition to advisory for a long time. And people continue to like art as a form of collateral because it's very stable in volatile markets. So if you have margin facilities with stocks and equities, the fluctuation can be all over the place. Whereas with an art line, the art's valued and you can pretty much not necessarily set it and forget it forever, but you can you can rest easy once you have your line in place that you know you've got that available liquidity. And if your art loan is with uh, someone like City or Emigrant, where there's an in-house group of experienced right. art advisors, they have the perspective, even if there's fluctuations in the market, to say this is a blip. It's right. not something to exactly. get your hair on right. fire about. Exactly. The sky is not falling. It's just a moment. And that the art market will be around forever. You know, people's desire to buy things at whatever price point is part of our human condition. Yeah. And, you know, and the people that are fortunate to be able to buy masterpieces and important works of art are going to keep doing it. Right. And it is a form of behavior that goes back thousands of years to antiquity, to the Renaissance. Like cave paintings. Cave paintings, that it is a sign of wealth and prestige and power and is never going away. No. It may change and we may need more, you know, outlets in our house to plug in the digital works, but, you know, it'll it'll keep going. And it's interesting, there was a, an obit in today's paper on a pioneering digital artist who died in her 90s in the New York Times. I forget her name. I haven't fully read the obituary, but it did remind me about digital art. I've come to learn a little bit about it. I'm still a novice, but it is a fascinating thing in that it has been around, although much ignored, since the 70s. And now this newer generation, maybe it seems they may be more interested in it. Have you any thoughts on that aspect of the art market? When was the Beeple sale? That was March 2021. Yeah. And that just lit the world on fire. And then all the auction houses started doing NFT digital sales. And then it softened, but it doesn't mean it's gone away. People are very, are quietly, patiently, like any other collection, building really important digital collections. Yeah. And I think it's important to separate it. Like the NFT is a component, but to separate that from your mind, because if you think about Andy Warhol's silk screening tomato soup cans, people didn't consider that art at the time. No. And so when you look at like an artist like Refik Anadol, who... I'm an oil on painting kind of person, but when I see his work, you are actually moved the way you're moved looking at an amazing oil painting. Right. And, you know, he's having, a, you know, a wonderful career and collected globally. And there are other artists like that. So I think it's going on. We're just not hearing the buzz. Yeah. But it, it's it's out there. 
in support of what you're saying, I think you're absolutely right. I've spoken to some of my friends in the digital department at one of the auction houses, and they have said that because of the problems in the digital currency market, it sort of tainted or cast a pall in the press over the right. digital art. But still, there is a lot of activity going on there, a lot of private sales, so that, uh, and this sort of is relevant to what you're saying about how collectors in the larger art market act and behave independent of what's being reported in the press, that in the digital market, there are a lot of private sales going on where people are dedicated and they're still collecting and they're right. still active and, and it, things And it are doesn't still have happening. to be in crypto. No. You know, no. you can write a paper check for That's it. That's right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. No, I, th I think we're, go you know, as these collections start building, I think we're going to see more museum exhibitions. Well, look at MoMA with the Rafik Anadol in the lobby. That yeah. was amazing. And now they've acquired it. Yeah. So this discussion about the dedication of collectors and connoisseur to connoisseurship and passion for a work. Let me ask you a question about your own interests or your own passion. And I've made this a question for all of my guests and uh, we're actually opening it up to the general listeners out there to supply their own answers to this question. In the museum of your mind, in all of the works that <laughs> you've seen over your lifetime, this is sort of a takeoff on the Donna Tart book, The Goldfinch, mm -hmm. where that the protagonist saves the Goldfinch painting from the Met, an exhibition at the Met. What would be your grab and run piece in an instance where you thought a work of art might be in danger that you would steal it off the wall to save it, that you are so smitten with the work or it had such a life changing impact on you that you want to protect it with your life? Well, I'd need your help because it's big. My mother, when I was a little girl, took me to MoMA, and I saw the Matisse Red Studio there, and that painting has stuck with me in such a strong way my whole life. Like, looking at that, you know, I was like seven, and then you're looking at Rothko, looking at all these other artists out there. Just the incredible beauty of that painting. And then when MoMA did that show two or three years ago, where they really dissected how, how it had been painted— was like a wonderland for me. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Matisse Red Studio, but you have to help me. Uh, I would. Well, it's funny you say that because my grab and run piece is so huge. I think I would need three or four people <laughs> to take it. I was reminded of it when I was in Spain this past week, and it's the uh, Guernica. And when I first saw that at the MoMA, when I first moved to New York, I'm dating myself now. I was just blown away by it, not just its scale, but its political message, its emotional message, and its historical importance. And, and now it's rightfully back where it belongs in Spain, but it was wonderful to have it here for those yep, many years. Well, yeah. you want to know a fun fact? What? I was a registrar at MoMA. No. And helped roll it when wow. it was taken off the stretcher and sent back to Spain. Wow. I'm yeah. blown away by that. Yeah. I feel like I'm in the yeah. in the That's in my the fun fact. That's a really privileged <laughs> position to be in. What year was that? 81? 80? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. wow. Well, that's, uh, that's amazing. <laughs> that, that's, it was an amazing moment because you knew how important it was. You wow. know, and you're down like with the conservators on your hands and knees, glassine at the time all over the place, like big roll. And it must have it. been emotional. A little? Yeah. Yeah. It was a big deal. Yeah. It was huge. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, um, well, that's uh, that's a great, great story to end on, Suzanne, <laughs> and has such great relevance and meaning for all of us. 
So thank you for being here today and giving us your time. And I want to also thank Emigrant Bank Fine Art Finance for making you available to us. Thanks to Newsstand Studio for the recording facilities here at Rockefeller Center and their terrific editing. The information and views expressed by the host and guests in this episode are solely their own. And they are not necessarily those of Christie's education, but were provided for illustrative and educational purposes. Christie's Education is the only academic institution wholly owned by an auction house. Our programs have been developed to provide focused insight for art professionals, art collectors, and the art curious, anyone looking to develop a deeper understanding of the art market. For me, Michael Plummer, you can learn more about my 40 years of experience at the auction houses founding and managing the art fair, TAFAF New York, and my experience in art finance on LinkedIn. I currently teach regularly at Christie's Education. Follow along with ongoing trends at Christie's Education, online at education.christies.com, and on Instagram at education.christies.